Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, we talk about Grenfell. You ask us, what's it like to be an MEP? And then we talk about the looming election. So although the big kind of political news this week is the fact that we are having an election on the 12th, and we will discuss that later in the podcast, the most important sort of policy story this week is the phase one of Martin Morbick's report into the... Grenfell Tower fire, which came out this morning. So we thought we'd talk about that first. Yeah, my first reflections on it was sort of not the report itself, but the sort of the way it's been staged and sort of released has been a bit of a shame for the survivors and relatives of the people who died in the fire. First of all, it was announced a while back that it would be released on the eve of Brexit. Of course, we were supposed to leave the European Union tomorrow. And that was, you know, some activists in the area were dismayed about that because they thought rightly that Brexit would overshadow the findings of the report. That hasn't happened, but unfortunately it has coincided with the arrival of the sort of election date and and the beginning of the campaign. So that's a shame. Also, it was leaked, which didn't give the actual community a chance to look through the report before it started being framed in the press. And the way that it's been framed and sort of the order of things has meant that there's a lot of focus on the fire brigade, rather than on other things that are present in the report, such as building regulations and the cladding that was used on the building as well. So I think it's sort of It's a bit topsy-turvy and it's taken quite a lot of the limelight away from the actual victims. Yeah, I made a conscious choice in in Morning Call not to cover the the leaks because I knew the inquiry had asked people not to do this Mm. and I, to be honest, did feel it was inappropriate and it's one of those things where it was... I felt unnecessary to have that conversation a day earlier and also I know that some of the readers of the email uh, know people who were in the tower so I I opted not to to cover it off for for that reason and although the full report which I've read so it comes in three parts Mm. I've read the executive summary his full recommendations chapter and the beginning I'm making my way through the rest of it 
although the full report is critical of the fire services and the emergency services more broadly, the centrally important part, particularly as we go into... Well, so the important part, one, from a victim's perspective, the thing that people wanted but sort of feared wouldn't happen... And he himself kind of said, oh, I didn't quite expect I would come down to quite this strongly in phase one. I thought I would say this for phase two, but I yeah, think it's important, but to, it's important to, to have, it, to have it and say it now. <clears throat> it's basically to say, one, the tenant management, management organisation's fire guidance was inadequate, 15 years out of date. And two, that the cladding was the central issue. That, of course, validates the things that residents were saying before the fire and increases the, the both the likelihood and, and the likelihood of success of, you know, that that people will end up in court. Because firefighters on the ground worked very hard and were incredibly brave. But it is very clear, particularly if you read the very harrowing, you know, kind of hour-by-hour reconstruction of what happened, Mm. that the point where... So in a block of that type, in a block like mine, in a block like many people over the country, whether they're in a private built... a block built for private use or for social use or for a bit of both... What's meant to happen is plant plantation. You phone the fire brigade. If there's a fire in another block, they go, "Cool, we'll you know another flat. Cool, we'll fix it. Stay where where you are, and uh, and you're in fact fine." As indeed happened in my block with a kitchen fire relatively recently. What happened in this case is that the compartmentation failed. The fire spread through the whole block, which resulted in many, many more people dying than than you would expect and mm. um, yeah because you know a kitchen fire happens in homes all around the country yeah. and in blocks all around the country yeah the central problem of course wasn't the cladding spread spread the fire and the architectural feature at the top caused the fire to spread across the roof which meant that there was no way of evacuating people from above but the fire service had no evacuation plan for the tower which was one of the things that people were meant to have done after the Le- Canal tower fire in 2009 yeah and it took quite some time to move from stay put to get out as well as it turning out that operationally they weren't very well equipped to move from to, from stay put to get out and although among the leadership of the London Fire Fire Brigade there is now quite a lot of know-how about what went wrong with the Canal Tower it clearly had not been spread down to the people who were actually having to take risks on on the ground mm. and all three of the emergency services completely failed to liaise with each other yeah. adequately they all at three separate points in the night declared a state of emergency which is a point where you're meant to tell the other emergency services and crucially the local authority the central story of of why it happened is that the um the cladding was dangerous phase 2 will will look at almost directly at you know so it's almost solely i mean at you know the regulatory backdrop which allowed that to happen yeah because there's still an open question about how much it sort of mattered one way or the other but it's been a very weird day because you've kind of have been on air talking about it today yeah um it is quite strange because i went on a politics program today to do a bit of punditry and obviously you know the program is is focused on westminster but it is it is quite odd for for the grenfell report which we've been waiting for for so long as well not to be sort of the main part of the narrative today i mean mps are debating it boris johnson um, made a statement about it um it's it's a huge story and also phase two like you say is going to cover a huge other part of the story and we'll only hear about it in 2022 we think so i think yeah. i think that's right so this is like our one chance to really talk about it for a very long time where it should be in the news it should be the top of the headlines on the front pages and instead we sort of have these strange jokey front pages from newspapers like vote actually for christmas and and stuff like that not to sound too pious you know obviously it's the election is big news and it's going to change the 
potentially change the shape of our, our future, but we're not going to have another opportunity and those victims are not going to have another opportunity for a really long time to be the story. I think actually one of the kind of, you know, slightly surprising for this podcast, but I think one of the things I am more heartened by is actually the Boris Johnson Downing Street and Boris Johnson himself handling of and reaction to this is so much better at every conceivable level than Theresa May's. I mean, I remember in the days afterwards, there seemed to be an almost, you know, just an inability on the part of May's administration in the kind of first days after the fire to comprehend that 30% of the country lives in a tower block in, of some kind, whether it's, you know, built for social housing, built for mixed sector, many of which have, yeah, 400 of which have cladding. And the kind of, the way they kind of basically kind of, essentially they spread fear in those first days by kind of going, oh, you know, it could, it could be any of them. It could, you know, kind of, yeah. there was no action. There was no, uh, you know, the kind of, there was no proper leadership from either Downing Street or from a departmental level. And often that Downing Street seemed to act like it was a natural disaster almost. Yeah, you know, kind of, yeah, the way they kind of, you know, go green for Grenfell. It's just like, imagine that you have the levers of executive power. <laughs> to, and, to do more than go green. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, actually there has been, Slightly more, not as much as I would like, but slightly more seriousness from Robert Jenrick at at local government. But also, actually, you know, Downing Street, I think, has been very good over the last 48 hours, you know, know, very firmly rebutting both when journalists have said tomorrow is the first day of the election going, no, tomorrow is the day when we're having this Grenfell debate. Mm. Um, I I know that one civil servant in Downing Street kind of said, well, you won't need us very much tomorrow because, you know, the joy of Perder and holidays until no, this is a really, really important. You know, he cleared his schedule in order to, you know, to be able to sit because they knew that many of the families would be in the chamber and listen to the other debates. Mm-hmm. Um, they moved around, uh, you know, kind of their various obligations to uh, journalists in Westminster in terms of briefings so that journalists would not immediately all file out. Yeah, and seeing as the certainty, I think, of phase two, but even the recommendations of phase one basically say, look, government has got to improve its fire regulations, improve housing, has really got to a certain legislate, also to get the people who own these tower blocks to actually fix the, yeah. the cladding issue. Because although this was a tragedy which happened in a arm's length local authority block yeah it could happen in a variety of housing types and the people who've had the least done to fix it have been ones where they cannot vote out there the people who run their housing yeah and you just have a private tenant going well you you've got to help to buy a mortgage there it's, it's your problem then you're you're in a fire trap and so they'll be able to sell their yeah. houses like and so i think although there are many things about the outcome of the election i'm deeply worried about i am quite optimistic that whoever wins will actually take on the recommendations in this report because there has just been a level of engagement with it that mm. is just a complete step change from what yeah. went before. Yeah, ministers have been committing to implement all the recommendations already, so you sort of hope that that will happen. Just to add one last thing, I mean, yes, there are people still living in, in flats that have that dangerous Grenfell-style cladding around the country. But there's also people living in other dangerous kind of situations which are ignored, really. We've had two sort of scandals uncovered recently. One of them was these new-build houses that people on Help to Buy Mortgages buy and then developers brush their hands and that's it. You know, all the problems are are your problem. And some of these have been fire safety issues that they've sort of skipped in order to build these houses as quickly as possible. And there was another scandal in one of the London boroughs that I can't actually remember at, at the moment 
where people are living on week-to-week leases in these basically condemned old council blocks, which are really dangerous. You know, people have had their children bitten by cockroaches in these places. So it's not all about that individual type of cladding. It's about having respect for people who, who are living in these kind of buildings around the country and making sure that they're not in dangerous situations. So now we've got a special edition of You Ask Us. Obviously, we occasionally, some might say too often, sort of geek out about parliamentary procedure here. But we don't really talk about any of the other parliaments that we are part of outside of the United Kingdom. Obviously, the European Parliament being the most important and the one which is kind of up for grabs in this election. So we're joined by Louisa Porritt, who is Lib Dem MEP for London, to talk to us about what, what it's like being an MEP. Thank you, Stephen. Well, it's obviously been a bit of a strange time for us British MEPs because we're in an existential situation. So I don't think we've been quite doing the job in the normal way as if we knew we had five years. So a lot of what we see our role as as Lib Dem MEPs is highlighting the importance of remaining part of this institution and EU institutions more generally and the important work that we do and the kind of decisions that we're making. In terms of the day-to-day, if we take that out of the equation, we go to Strasbourg once a month where we have our plenary sessions where we sit as a whole parliament and that's when we vote on legislation. And we race through loads of votes at once, so it's it's quite chaotic and everything's being translated at the same time. So you have to really concentrate so you don't lose your place and accidentally vote the wrong way because it all operates predominantly on electronic voting, unlike our parliament here in the UK. And then the rest of the time we're in Brussels and we're having committee meetings where we also have votes and we all sit on specialist committees according to our areas of expertise. It's interesting that you, you use the word chaotic because I always imagine the European Parliament with its electronic voting as like very sort of organised and staid and sort of efficient. But are you saying that there's sort of the type of chaos and confusion and high drama that we see in the UK Parliament? Not quite comparable <laughs> to the levels of drama in the UK Parliament at the moment. I think that would be quite difficult to match. <laughs> but as both us and the Brexit Party MEPs are in the Parliament. A little taste of Britain has been brought to uh, (laughs) Brussels and Strasbourg, I think. Yeah, so not chaotic in that sense, but more in the sense that there's a a lot to absorb in a short space of time. Uh, The way that the Parliament operates is quite different to Parliament here because everything is based on compromise and actually no legislation would get through if if it wasn't done in that way. So there are often really last minute changes before voting and that's what I mean by chaotic. You have to make sure you're really up to speed with what those changes are and there can be very last minute changes both at the group level as a wider group of MEPs across the whole parliament so we sit in a wider liberal grouping but also sometimes as a Lib Dem delegation as a group we will have our own position on things as well so there are a whole host of policy areas that we'll vote on at once and it's making sure that we keep abreast of that. So yeah as you say you're part of the the liberal grouping, which is, fair, well, as with all of the European parliamentary groups, it's quite broad, right? It includes Emmanuel Macron, but it also includes Mark Rutte, and it includes... Does it also include 
D sixty six. Your yes. other because you've got two partner parties. In. Indeed. Yeah. What's how how do they find that? Because obviously they compete with each other, and although they don't agree on a great deal, what's that sort of like day to day? Yeah. Well, Renew Europe, which is the name of this new political grouping that used to be called Aldi, is is entirely new in the sense that the French have come into it, and and that's slightly adapted the identity of the group. So. We see ourselves as the most pro-European grouping in the Parliament. That's the the identity first and foremost, and also a, a progressive grouping. But it is this kind of mishmash of newer groups from different countries and former Liberal parties. And as you say, there are some countries like the Netherlands that have more than one Liberal party. So we're all learning how to work together, actually. And and it's not necessarily just that there could be tensions at a country level. It's that, that battle to identify what our core values are, because this is the largest that group has ever been now. There are 108 MEPs, and finding those common values and identity is, is quite a challenge, and we're still working through that. Journalists who work in Brussels from the UK often get asked, you know, what on earth are you doing? What is your country doing? Do you find, as a Brit working in the European Parliament, that you get sort of almost personally associated with Brexit or the mess that we're going through in this country? Well, I think the good thing is our colleagues know exactly where we stand on Brexit, so we don't mind being associated with it so long as we're associated (laughs) with the Remain side of the argument and and fighting for the pro-European cause, because actually there's a lot of empathy for our cause um, across the parliament from other pro-Europeans because they may not be quite at the same juncture as us, but they are all facing the same sort of battles at home as well. You know, this struggle between pro-Europeans and Eurosceptics, it's happening in other countries. This is also happening in France, for example. So there's, there's sympathy with our cause, but also undoubtedly a huge sense of frustration at the fact that the UK as a country hasn't managed to find a way forward yet on Brexit and that that's still kind of hanging over the work that the European Parliament's doing and just like people at home in the UK other Europeans really want to move on and talk about other things. Mm. So about you kind of talked about that sense of frustration one of the kind of important behind the scenes thing about what happened this week was there was the you know Joseph was I think very aware that if this parliament didn't do something then we were going to end up with a very short technical extension to ratify and we would have been out from a day-to-day perspective how much is the job in this sort of weird time of trying to save our eu membership how much of it do you kind of spend sort of reporting back you know kind of like look here's the mood here you know would you say that's 50 percent of your job 90 percent of your job at the moment at the moment, it's particularly crucial, and and in recent weeks, it has been obviously to uh, give a sense of what the real feeling is like from other European countries. So last week, it, we were all in Strasbourg for our plenary session, and we were talking to our Liberal colleagues within our group, our French colleagues in particular, but also from other countries as well, because there are a few countries represented within our group that are also in government. So we had that link to get back to heads of member states. And as well as trying to explain all the kind of complex 
developments of UK parliamentary procedure that were happening last week to them. Like, what is first reading? What is second reading? What does this actually mean in terms of the likelihood of Boris Johnson getting his bill through? Um, We were also communicating with our colleagues in the UK parliamentary party to explain how this was perceived and and what the likelihood of us getting a three-month extension would be like versus the short technical one. And we did get feedback from our colleagues, the French in particular, that that letter that the Lib Dems and the SNP sent was actually critical in making that decision to grant us three months rather than one. MPs and councillors like you obviously sit for a specific place, but they have kind of casework. And so how does the kind of London end of being the MEP for London work? Yeah, so the casework is quite different. I'm still a councillor in Camden as well, so I can can compare and contrast quite well. I do get casework. Um, It's usually people trying to highlight kind of larger scale issues to me. So I've had quite a lot on Brexit, as you might expect. We had quite a few emails, all of us Lib Dems, and I suspect other British MEPs as well last week saying, please lobby for a longer extension. And we say, well, that is the Lib Dem position, so don't have to worry so things like that come up but also other areas particularly on environmental legislation for example so yeah I'd say that people come to us with casework about it's not kind of housing issues it's more stuff that can be affected at the European level and if it isn't then we would pass them on to a councillor or MP depending on the nature of their problem but usually the right kind of questions come our way and then as a counsellor, the type of casework that I get is very different. That's much more to do with you know, things like overcrowding situations um, in social housing, the need to get repairs done, rubbish collections, yeah, more of the kind of day-to-day at the local level. We were talking, I think, in a previous podcast about how sort of the, the new politics where people are less loyal to, to individual political parties and more unpredictable means that we've ended up with a sort of system, not of coalition, but of enforced cross-party cooperation, more like some of our European neighbours. I wonder what you think of that idea, because lots of um, Lib Dem MPs on the airwaves recently, since the election was sort of firmed up, have been asked about being kingmakers or queenmakers come the general election. I mean, how do you feel about that sort of cooperation? Well, I think the cooperation that's happened to date, cross-party, particularly on on fighting against a no-deal Brexit, has obviously been essential in mitigating and preventing that from happening. So I think that's very encouraging and grown up, and it would be good to see more of that in the next parliament. Um, And as you say, it is quite a lot like how my job as a European parliamentarian works, um, groups talk to each other all the time because that's how decisions get made and no one kind of gets their perfect outcome but actually it means that things can progress so yes it'd be good to see more of that but in terms of a more formal sense of cooperation I mean the Lib Dems are standing in this election to win Jo Swinson has said she's a candidate for Prime Minister so uh, we're not looking to make any formal arrangements and um, have ruled out a coalition with either Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson but you know that doesn't mean that in a new parliament there won't be issues that it makes sense to work on cross-party and I, I hope that some of the behaviour that we've seen in in Westminster will 
die down as a result of a fresh start with a new parliament and it, it is a chance to do things in a bit of a different way, I think, this election. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So we're having an election on the 12th of December. You were right. I was wrong. <laughs> well, actually, so the thing is, I was thinking about this because we were, we were actually both... Well, you you were right, and I was. The weird thing is, actually, you were completely right, right? In the, uh, <laughs> you went. Come on, the fact that this is people who make mistakes will continue to make mistakes. Labour MPs aren't going to suddenly go. Actually, we've played not having this election terribly. This is going to end in disaster or ratification of the Brexit deal. I don't know. Why I'm splitting those as an, an or. Uh, yeah, um, you know, we we really need to you know do something about this. They actually you know basically. I was about to say until the last minute, but actually even after Corbyn had kind of gone, no, I'm going to bow to the inevitable, uh, They, some of them still voted against it because yeah. obviously the best way to go into an election you don't want is to, you know... Be, be dragged kicking and screaming. Is to be dragged kicking and screaming to it and be publicly <laughs> divided about it. Um, and I actually do think, I'm not just saying this, you know, because you're, you know, within within hitting distance of me, but I think it is more important to be right about process than it is to be right about outcome because mostly if you're correct about the process and something happens, you'll be right more often than not. Whereas, like... I'll take that. <laughs> but I, yeah, it's, it's rather like this election, right, where... Some people are going, it's too volatile to make a prediction six weeks out. Some people are going, Boris Johnson's going to win by loads. Now, those people might well be right, but their method of reaching that conclusion means that they will be wrong about more elections and more events than they will be right about. Because, yeah, the thing that I did not really see coming was this idea that we would get an election via the Liberal Democrats no, and the I SNP didn't. going, OK, here's a way that we can guarantee that it happens in a timetable that, that we can trust without you to doing any jiggery-pokery. The thing I kind of find astonishing, and I don't think it really matters because I think once the election's happened, the attack line that you didn't want it... Yeah, it falls away, doesn't falls it? falls away. Yeah. But it would worry me if I were Labour that Corbyn had the right idea, I think, or was correct to believe they needed to go for it, mm. and still ended up bungling the politics of it quite so badly. Like, the speech he gave where it kind of, you know, it kind of completely... In a, it completely exposed the logical difficulty of being this government's terrible, universal credit is awful, but maybe we should leave open the possibility of that continuing for a year while you get this major legislative victory that will knock the morale out of a large chunk of the left. What could go wrong? And I just found it kind of surprising that someone who thought that it was a mistake not to go for an election could look at that speech and go, yep, this is not leading with my glass jaw. Mm -hmm. And I think that would worry me in terms of their ability to not only make the right calls but sustain and see through the right calls i am increasingly astonished by like the parliamentary labor party's ability to convince itself of things like the number of them tweeting is like shocking to see the at lib dems abandoning the people's vote which there is definitely oh they love chance. saying that don't this, they this is one of those things where it's just like i just look and it's just like guys do you 
I'm not sure what I find more troubling. The fact that I actually do think they do sincerely believe it. Because it's just like, do, do you sincerely believe this? Worrying because you can convince yourself of any... Like, at this point, anyone who thinks that this parliament was going to vote for a second referendum under any circumstances is just deluding themselves, mm-hmm. right? To be fair to them, they've been lied to by an awful lot of people, the Lib Dems, New European, you know, the, now the Labour Party. But <laughs> it's it's not going to happen, right? This parliament was never going to do it. But also, EU diplomats were openly saying to various people, if these people don't, if you don't have a democratic, it's a democratic event or it's a technical extension to yeah. ratify, you need to pick one. And it's just like either those MPs have deluded themselves or think that we're all so witless that we can go, oh, yeah, no, it's true. What I really think of when I think about the Parliamentary Labour Party is a united, cohesive group of people who have been 100% <laughs> clear and committed to one Brexit outcome over the last three years. No, no, no one thinks that. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's just insane. I mean, I, I just cannot think of a more catastrophic sort of miscalculation than if... Imagine if they had got what they wanted and we now had a 15-day extension to to ratify... The Brexit deal. What would they have done next? I mean, what turned around? And Who's got... thrown the people's vote away yeah. then? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's just someone that's just like, guys, play, play this. Why, why don't we ask ourselves? <laughs> why don't we what, yeah, how this strategy might work in say a week. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, no, not that far ahead. But it does mean that you know, thanks to that motion, we now have a chance to save our membership of the EU, change yeah. the government, all of which I think would have not happened had the that motion not been put. Yeah, yeah, and they just sat on their hands. And actually, it's going to be interesting to see what that sort of second newfound second re- referendum fervour, whether, whether that benefits them. Because what's interesting is that the Conservatives clearly have this line that they're going to try and use probably for the whole campaign, which is vote Labour and get two more referendums, one on EU membership, one on Scottish independence. They clearly think this is like a killer line. And actually, you know, thinking about it... <laughs> Sorry, just a look of utter weariness on your face <laughs> thinking about it from a superficial point of view it makes sense because the voters keep being asked to go and vote on things and people get you know fed up with it brenda from bristol style but <laughs> but then at the same time you know they're drawing attention to a strategy that labor was sort of dragged to adopt because because of political realities because of the way that the lib dems and the greens have been surging yeah, I mean, this is the thing is that I think there are two strategic vulnerabilities in the Conservative Party's position. The first, as you say, is that, right, then looking at the public polling, looking at some of the briefing I've had from other, you know, from the SNP Lib Dems and, you know, conversations I've had with the Greens, because obviously they sadly do not have the resources to, you know, lavish large amounts of, of private polling. I find it hard to not see it as an incredibly risky strategy for the Conservative Party to be like Labour or the party of another referendum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that feels to me like a, a strategy with considerable downsides if it ends up reunifying a large chunk of the Remain vote. Not even necessarily reunifying it. All that strategy needs to happen for it to go very badly wrong is for enough people who are Remainers whose first choice other Liberal Democrats to decide they can vote Labour tactically in the seats Labour holds, that will have a paper Liberal Democrat candidate, which is most of them, right? There's been a... Best for Britain has launched their tactical voting site, and, you know, Twitter and, like, centre and, and, and centre-left and left capacity to beef with one another being what it is. There's a lot of focus on the, I think, basically six 
seats where they are backing the Lib Dems, where you can feel that the Labour Party can be legitimately semi-aggrieved by it. Although, in each case, I think the, the argument for way how you should vote tactically in those seats is, is finely balanced. Mm-hmm. Everyone kind of seems to be ignoring on all sides that the real story of that website is that in enough seats that Labour could plausibly win to win a parliamentary majority, you put your postcode in and it says vote for the Labour Party. And anything, whether it's websites like that, whether it's the Conservatives' messaging, mm. it would concern me when I was the Tories that there's going to be a not that there might be quite a bit of headwind in places where because yeah the other the other big fallacy already in the section is leave seats and remain seats. Well, there's no such thing as a no. Well, there are basically fifteen remain seats in this country and 10 leave seats i.e. seats where the 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 leave or remain vote is so small that you cannot plausibly win an election under first past the post with the lion's share of it mostly uh, we are talking about vote shares and indeed raw numbers of votes than if you said went up to any mp and went you will get x number of votes they go well i'm definitely going to keep my job then Mm. if i've got all of that vote behind me that feels like vulnerability one and that feels like the vulnerability which feels more likely to be sprung. Everything is volatile and impossible to predict at this point, but that feels to me the most likely. But the second vulnerability, and this is why, despite being someone who wants to stay in the EU, did not like Labour's Norway, but we don't want to advocate for it policy um, <laughs> for kind of like ideological the jobs reasons. First Brexit, the job, but yeah, but again, this thing is actually like it's very easy to go like, oh, there's no such thing as a jobs first Brexit. It's actually not true. Like you know. Uh, Staying in the single market and customs union is a job yeah. for Brexit. It's a massive loss of sovereignty and or, or to- autonomy compared to EU membership or, or you know a harder Brexit. But it does prioritise jobs. That, that is that is what a jobs first Brexit is one which goes. I thought know, that was their best line on Brexit yeah. so far, but um, yeah. I think realistically there was no way or prospect for the Labour Party to hold that line internally. Yeah. Yeah, the reality of their NEC, the competition of the NEC, competition of the conference floor meant they were going to have to abandon it. So when I did that piece going, you know, they shouldn't change it, I didn't do it thinking, God, you're dumb not to. I just do think that the, if they had been able to stick to a position of let's stay in the EEA, I think they would be in quite a powerful position now because they would have been able to say... But look, there's, we're happy to vote for these exit terms because those exit terms, although they allow a harder Brexit, they're entirely conducive with, with a, a sort of Labour jobs first Brexit. Why have you called an election that you don't mm. need to have? It's non-disruptive. It, it gives one of the weird ironies of the Brexit process, right, is the majority of leavers are people who are angry about the free movement of people to places they do not live. Yeah, like most most places where people are most concerned about immigration from the EU don't have very much of it. And on the other hand, you have Remainers who are very angry about a right to free movement that most of them will not and cannot meaningfully exercise because the standard of language education in this country is is so poor. They're they're cultural synduces for kind of wider sort of sense of... But from a Labour perspective, something which allows people who still want those free movement rights to exist in the abstract holds that stuff together, means that you're a pro-Brexit party. However, having not used the moment in 2017 of maximum power to go, we're going to stay in the EEA, and if you don't like it, there's the door. I think they were at that point, and obviously this is a classic example of hindsight being 2020, in a kind of losing position where they were always going to have to change the policy. And it means that this vulnerability, right, that Boris Johnson does not need to have an election to save Brexit. In fact... Calling the election is is a bigger risk to Brexit than proceeding with this parliament 
would have been. He yeah. has called this election because he wants an election on saving Brexit. He's just, yeah, he's just chosen to risk Brexit in order to get a bigger majority. Yeah, and which is yeah. what Theresa May did. Which is what Theresa May did. Yeah. But the reason why that vulnerability was exploited and exposed for Theresa May is the Labour Party was pro-Brexit at the time. Yeah. Uh, they were able to go, well, we're pro it too. We just voted for Article 50. Haven't you noticed that the public realm is falling apart? Um, so every time I say that, I feel like I'm sounding that I'm just like lol as if the public realm is falling apart. I mean, the public realm is falling apart. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were able to do all of those things because they had this the Brexit position they had. My concern with the caveat and everything is is volatile. Isn't that strategic vulnerability for the Conservatives cannot be hurt because although it's true there was a majority in this Parliament to do this Brexit deal. It's very difficult for you to argue that if you're the Labour Party when you're on the one hand saying vote for us and we'll have a referendum yeah. and this election is unnecessary because if you hadn't voted for us we wouldn't have been able to deliver this referendum <laughs> in the last parliament. And so that kind of feels to me like their sort of situation. What do you see as the kind of like lay of lay of the land? Yeah, no, I mean I I think you and I were quite similar when Labour was sort of struggling to come to a Brexit policy that would hold the party together but obviously reality has just led them down the path to to where they've reached now including all those MPs who were in favour of a people's vote who left the party um, and also the results of the European elections and the council elections as well so I can see why they've had to make that choice but I agree with you that it would be a much better sell to say you know we've always been the party of a soft compromise Brexit you know look at Boris Johnson trying to risk the whole process for you know his own personal gain and for political sort of hegemony being you know for for cynical political reasons whereas we're here reaching our you know arms across the chamber to try and get a brexit deal that works for the whole country i do think that that would have been a better thing better path to take but it was so the path to that point was so difficult and everything so unpredictable that yeah that, that that i understand why we haven't ended up where we are but i do worry i do worry about some of the lines that labor are using so some of the stuff they're saying about, I know that they had that sort of privil- people over privilege or whatever it was at the Labour conference. I think they're trying to bring that into into the fore for their election campaign strategy, trying to remind voters in some of the seats that they're worried about that Boris Johnson is a Tory, just like the rest of them. You know, he's posh, he's privileged, he he's out of touch, he doesn't understand your everyday lives, which is a vulnerability for the Conservative Party. But I think that's been proved not to work so many times now that I, I don't think it's necessarily the best strategy i mean people voted for david cameron in 2015 after five years of austerity and the sort of etonian chumocracy that was very well publicized throughout his sort of early premiership so i kind of worry about that that strategy and i don't know how much it, it works so the thing is right it's, it's true than david but david cameron was had a very different geographic electoral coalition yeah than, it, yeah than, obviously than, things were different then but I think the problem is I think it probably does work right in then it probably caps you know just because it's top of mind because I was I'm booking my train tickets there at the moment it probably does cap the the conservative vote in Bishop Auckland at let's say 18,000 mm-hmm. which wouldn't have been from the top of my head enough to win in 2017 the problem is is does labor have a message which taps their losses to the Lib Dems and Greens in Bishop Auckland at a number which means that they get 18,001 votes. Mm, mm-hmm. And that to me feels like, you know, I keep reading like, you know, um, various commentators from other publications saying things like, how are the Conservatives going to win Battersea? And it's just like, well, they can win Battersea if Labour gets 20% and the Lib Dems get 
That yeah, that that is that is a way to win Battersea under our like hilarious yeah. spin <laughs> spin the bottle style. Spin the bottle's not that random. There, you know. <laughs> let's imagine I know understand gambling enough for this <laughs> metaphor to work, right? Yeah, and I can't. Yeah, I think because I think it, it probably does cap the losses to, to the Conservatives at, at sort of twenty seventeen levels, but. Well, it doesn't matter if they have other other problems. I see, they have other, yeah. yeah. Speaking of those other problems, <laughs> we obviously talked about a Lib Dem MEP about life in the European Parliament. But you know, how do you sort of see their vulnerabilities and opportunities in this election? Yeah, I think that... Um Obviously, the sort of thing to say for, for the upcoming election is that it's completely unpredictable, but people, voters are no longer as loyal to the main two parties that they used to be. There's a lot of churn. We've seen from the most recent elections that we've had is that there's a lot of enthusiasm for the smaller parties. And also, they are now the one party that can really go out to the, the electorate and say, this is your last chance to stop Brexit. So that's a very strong message to remain-minded voters. So I think they will do very well but that's not to say that they won't have challenges I think that there are I remember reporting from Cornwall last time round and you know some of the people there on the Lib Dem campaign were sort of tearing their hair out over the manifesto that was then for a second referendum and interviewing Vince Cable who was then leader after that disastrous election and him saying oh you know it was completely wrong to put that on the manifesto I know things are different now people are even more polarized on remain and leave voting blocks but Revoke is is an even more extreme version of that second referendum was back then. And I think that will turn certain voters off in some places where the Lib Dems, you know, generally do well or have a chance. That said, I do think, you know, if we're thinking of a Remain or a Leave block taking over government next time round, the Lib Dems and the Labour Party have, have probably have more of a chance if that's how things are going to play out because they're more geographically spread out. So most of the Lib Dem, the majority of the Lib Dem target seats are Conservative seats. Whereas if you think about the Conservatives and the Brexit Party, the, the Brexit Party would mainly be taking votes off Brexiteer Tories. Really, okay, there's a few Labour seats where they where they you know could potentially make the, the Labour MP slightly fearful, but they sort of eat each other's votes. Whereas the Lib Dems, Labour, and the other remain parties kind of a bit more evenly spread so for a first past the post system if they're going to work together if they get in government that sort of bodes better for them i think yeah because i kind of think with all of the caveats and you will get sick of hearing for us every week about things being volatile and therefore hard to predict people do seem to have forgot them we've stress tested in recent times an election where the lib dems get wiped out and there is a strong ukip because let's face it the brexit party is is ukip yeah and the Conservatives won a majority. Then we had an election where the UKIP slash Brexit party was non-existent and the Lib Dems revived a little bit and the Conservatives did not have a majority because, as you say, the areas of strength for the kind of centre-centre-left parties are different. Now, it may not matter if, you know, if first-past-the-post means then Johnson can kind of just jump all over that difficulty, but it is risky. It is an intensely vulnerable path. And, yeah, it's a long campaign and we don't know how it will end. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Anoush Shikelian. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Thank you very much for your responses to the question about whether or not I should change the music. Like David Cameron, I asked a question to get one answer and got the one I didn't want, but like David Cameron, I will be abiding by it, so the music will stay. Unlike David Cameron, I'm afraid I'm not resigning, but please, you know, do keep enjoying the New Statesman podcast and do leave favourable reviews about it on your podcast provider. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts.